Alhamdulillah. I hope you all had a really good week. Um, I know <clears throat> we've been really busy. And um, to give you the latest number, I don't know if people are following the tally online, but so we have 110 people now that have donated, or the equivalent of 110 people. So the way I tally it is I look at you know, um, the number of donations, whether it's recurring, whether it's one time, and I kind of use the, the metric of, you know, the equivalent of $1,200 for a year's worth of donations. So that 1,200 is, the, the 110 count is of how many people that have, you know, given or committed to give for the course of the year. So, um, inshallah, we, I know people are doing, you know, personal letter writing campaigns and and I think, honestly, I'm, I'm going to start doing the same, too, because I think that this is one of these projects that really requires a personal touch and um, just, you know, to really express how important it is, because most people really are not going to get it. They're not going to take the time to listen to 11 hours worth of halakha, um, you know, and they're not necessarily familiar with the professor. So it really requires people who, who know how important this is to really kind of help others see the way. Um, I want to thank everyone um, for their, um, I had asked people for testimonials and thank you so much for people who have submitted them and I know people are working on them so they're really beautiful. Actually I intended to print out, um, Shri can you grab, um, I think I printed in, in, in the printer, there's like two of the testimonials. There's two that I, I wanted to just share, I mean there are so many beautiful thoughts and if I just read them all we would be here for a while. But. Um, I just wanted to share a couple that, that um, I thought were particularly beautiful and that I'm going to, um, I mean, I'm going to use all of them for social media and whatever, and I hope that you'll share them. Um, so, Shreve's getting that printout for me. Hang on one second. Oh, thank you. So, sorry to embarrass a couple people. I'm going to embarrass Cheyenne and Amira. I don't know if Amira is here. Is Amira here? Okay. So, this was really powerful. Um, Cheyenne, I challenge anyone to show me a single modern scholar who has mastered all of the Islamic sciences and multiple social sciences, all whilst exhibiting an unbelievable level of clear, genuine piety, wisdom, integrity, and total dedication to the path of attaining justice. Dr. Abul Fadl is totally unmatched. After spending over 11 hours relaying his recent findings about the Quran, which has been a work in progress for over 30 years, his multidisciplinary achievements and intense spiritual connection with God, and the Quran can be described as nothing short of miraculously illuminating. What we stand to gain by supporting him with a grant to continue his research and to teach students will amount to infinite benefit for the Muslim Ummah for generations to come. We cannot afford to lose this opportunity. Please join me in supporting the mining of this groundbreaking knowledge. The future of our children depends on it. That is really powerful and beautiful and I agree 100% with every single word. Thank you so much, Cheyenne. Um, this one is from Amira, in my humble opinion, this endeavor is of utmost importance as it attempts to reclaim the spiritual essence of light and compassion in the Quran by employing a methodical and intellectual approach. I would call it hermeneutics of beauty and cannot undermine how, how crucial that is to our collective world today. So, alhamdulillah, that's absolutely beautiful. And um, so thank you, Amira. Um, yes, thank you, Doogie. That was Doogie, Doogie approves. <laughs> um, so inshallah, you know, honestly, this is like, um, I feel like I, I have another um, calling as a, a passionate fundraiser now <laughs> because this is like such an important project. 
And, um, you know, I, I feel like this is, this is something that, you know, we really all just have to get behind. So sorry, I, I have to apologize in advance if I sound like a broken record, because I think I will sound like that as we continue on. Um, so... Grace, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that's okay. Like, um, Alaikum um, Can I ask, um, are you going to share some of those testimonials with us? Because those are, those are indeed powerful, and they might be of use to us when we're approaching other people. Absolutely. I'd be very happy. And okay. I, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll make them available on social media as part of a campaign, but I'll also send them to you. And, and Jim, thank you. I know you Perfect. sent a really beautiful one today, too. And I, I will share them more as we go on, so I don't like share all the gold sure. in one time. So thank you very much. Um, so, you know, I, I just I wanted to reflect on a little bit on this last halakha, which to me was just so powerful, um, you know, and especially the part when the professor was talking about the signs of God and, you know, the ayat illah. Um, and, you know, it's it like it's one of these things that over the course of our life together that I've come to really appreciate you know, little things, like little signs of God, like even one of my favorite things is when I'm on the street and I see a baby and babies smile at me, like that to me is something that really makes me happy. Or when I see dogs or animals that I don't know and they respond to me, like I actually kind of start thinking of it as like a test of like, how am I doing? You know, like if I see a dog that's walking up to me, is the dog gonna look at me and respond? And it actually, normally, I mean, I'm so happy when they do. And I, I really do take that as like a small sign of, of, you know, of God and the beauty of God. But I had a couple of experiences this week that I thought I would share too that are sort of larger signs of God um, that, you know, were extremely powerful in helping me think about life. Um, a, f a few days ago, um, we woke up to the very sad news that um, a friend of ours had lost her husband, like literally overnight. He had had a heart attack and um, she woke up and he was gone. And it was completely unexpected. He wasn't ill. There was no lead up to it. There was no mental preparation. It was literally like, you know, you go to bed thinking everything is fine. And then you wake up and your world has completely changed. And, you know, he left behind um, a wife and a 17-year-old daughter and some children um, and grandchildren from a previous marriage. And, you know, we, like, when it hits really close to home like that, I mean, we hear about death every day, right? With the pandemic, we see these crazy numbers of people that are getting infected and people that are dying every day. But it's moments like these when it's someone that you know, someone that you've spent time with, someone that you care about, where it, it hits so close to home that this type of reminder is really powerful. And I, I always believe that every time someone, you know, passes away, it's just a reminder that that's something that we'll all, you know, um, confront. and. For me, it hits home because I start thinking about this will be me. This will be me one day, you know, and I don't mean me passing away. I mean, I think that, you know, for a lot of different reasons, the professor and I have sort of, you know, and God only knows, but the professor and I, I think have sort of decided to assume that he's going to leave this planet before me. And so, you know, in terms of like my mental preparation, you know, I, I often think, what is it going to be like? when I wake up and it's that day, that's the last day that the professor will be here with us and he's gone. And what am I going to do? And how am I going to feel? And you know, this, this instance um, of our friend really, I mean, I, it really allowed me to step into her shoes and feel like, oh my God, you know, she went to bed doing the typical things, you know, I think about all the little things that I take for granted, you know, when I, when I 
climb into bed at night, when I am late to come to bed and the professor gets irritated at me because I was selfish that night and decided I wanted to work on something a little bit longer. And, you know, I tell myself, well, okay, tomorrow will be another day. You know, I, there'll be many more moments like this. And, you know, it's really wrong because you really don't know if there will be another day. And, you know, the idea of like climbing into bed and having someone next to you that is a comfort, that is always there, that knows you, I mean, that even knows how you sleep. Like, you know, the other night the professor said to me, you know, 95% of the nights you sleep on your back. But for whatever reason, last night you slept on your side and you were facing in the other direction. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, really? I had no recollection, obviously I have no why. You know, and I started thinking of, well, maybe it's because I took a, a nap later in the day. But you know, the idea that, okay, someone loves you and cares enough about you to be able to tell you or to know how you sleep 95% of the time and that you slept differently that night, I thought was just really beautiful and touching. And so then the idea of not having that person there with you anymore is, you know, really terrifying if you allow yourself to think about it. So oftentimes I actually, oftentimes I pray and I ask God, I know this day is coming and please prepare me because I don't, you know, you can't ever really prepare to lose the people that you love, but I, I ask God, to, you know, please prepare me. And, and I know that, you know, I know that God will prepare me to the extent that God can and wants to prepare me. And I hope this is not really an issue of arrogance, it's an issue of trust. Because I, I believe that, you know, Allah is very merciful and Allah knows that this will be one of the darkest days of my life when the professor leaves this planet. And it's like, to even talk about it, I have to sort of compartmentalize it. You know, I'm getting a little teary, but it's like, okay, no, I'm going to just set it aside so I can talk about it and not cry. Um, but, you know, and, and I trust that even if it's intended to be a very difficult day and it's going to be more painful than anything I've ever experienced, that I trust that that's what Allah wanted for me and that there's a reason for that. So that in itself also is a sense of comfort and a, and a sense of trust, you know. So I then I start thinking, of course, about my parents, you know, and everyone knows is your parents' age. There's going to come that day where you get the phone call, you know, something happened. Is your, is it going to, you know, both, alhamdulillah, right now, both my parents are alive. Both of them are healthy. Um, and, but I know the day is coming that I will get the phone call. And is it going to be my father first? Is it going to be my mother first? Is it going to be both of them together? You know, you, you can't help but wonder about that. And, you know, again, I pray, please God, prepare me and, and prepare me to handle whatever challenges come after that happens. Because they may get sick, you know, and that's obviously going to be life-changing also. And then I think about my sons and I say, please God, you know, don't test me with them leaving this planet before me because I can't handle that. And, you know, and I think God knows that that would be really just too difficult on me. But again, it's like sort of just turning, turning to, to God and just saying, okay, you know, I, I just pray that you will prepare me. So like coming back to my friend, you know, I think, okay, well, how is she feeling now? It's been a day. It's been a day or two. You know, she's going to bed tonight and she went to bed last night and he was here and tonight he's not here. And, you know, they were taking care of the dogs together and now he's not there. You know, he's not going to be there tomorrow night or any night after that. You know, how, how does that, how does that feel? You know, then I start thinking about, well, at least I will know that if, if the professor has left this earth, 
that he won't be suffering anymore, right? Like now he is in pain pretty much 24 seven. He's dealt with health issues the vast majority of our time together. There have been many times where we literally have been at death's doorstep, or at least I thought that he was on death's doorstep. And alhamdulillah, you know, he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't at that time. But I imagine like, okay, you know, I'll find comfort in the idea that he's not suffering anymore. Um, that he will probably be greeted by his mother, who he misses tremendously, or you know, loving family members or friends that he lost in prison, um, or you know, any number of people. And I can imagine like the joy on his face and the light lightness of his heart, because you know, right now, literally, you know, he deals with every challenge that confronts Muslims and carries it like the weight of the world. And he'll no longer need to worry about it. You know, it's not, there's nothing that he will be able to do, and all that will be left is what he needs to answer to God for on the final day, which, and I mean, to me, I know he'll be in a much better place. So that alone comforts me. And I feel like, okay, it's always hardest on those of us who are left behind. Now, I mean, when someone leaves, obviously, you know, it's so important to see, like, what is the legacy that they've left behind. And, you know, subhanAllah, I, what an incredible legacy, right? If you've been following, the professor's work through all of these years, um, you know, I, it's there's there's so much, and I feel like I have had the greatest blessing to be there for so much of it. Like I've said often, um, you know, I've read most everything that the professor's written, and um, you know, it's I f I recognize that it's such a huge responsibility. So part of my understanding of this too. I start seeing, you know, this is God's preparation for me. Like, I know that if the professor is not here anymore, I have so much that of his legacy that I need to make available to others, and that is going to keep me busy from now until the time I leave this planet. And then the pressure comes on because it's like, holy cow, I know how much there is, and I better get busy because I don't know when I'm going to leave this planet. And, you know, like, just to give you sort of an example of things that I can that I will remember that I know will carry me through. And these are just some of the few nuggets that we all have learned here as we've been going through just even the last two halakas. You know, one is that this, this life is a test and the real life is to come. Second, I'm never alone as long as Allah is my partner and the whole idea and the concept of God as building a partnership with God, that God is with you in every single thing that you do. And certainly we talked about in the halakas how you know, God sees everything and knows everything, and that, you know, with Surah Jathia, we will be confronted with everything, the film of everything that we've done in our lives, you know, that sort of changes the way you understand that relationship. And from, um, you know, Surah Al-Hadid, the idea that, okay, you have to be strong like iron, but not like a rock, right? So it's like if you're like an iron and you're under the heat of, of something as painful and as difficult as losing your life partner, you have to adapt and you have to bend and you have to be strong. You can't crumble like a rock, you know? And that's something that, again, came from this incredible new Quran, you know, project. Um, and that, you know, and that ultimately that we have to trust in the signs of God. And that has, you know, as, as like a, a literally constant um, interaction with God to tell you how you're doing. All of these things came from my learning with the professor, you know, so it's, it's like I, I recognize how important, I mean, you know, I feel like with the Quran project, it's clear that 
he's sort of carving the path ahead for all of us, right? He's developed this incredible relationship with the Quran and he's sharing with us the fruit of all of those hours of prayer and begging and asking God to open up the meaning. And here we are, you know, with our hands open, you know, just receiving. And it's such, such a blessing. Um, so, you know, again, sorry, I'm gonna just say, how can we live without this knowledge? How can we, you know? But so my point is I think he's like carving the path and I feel like part of my role is sort of creating a path behind him because I know how much he's produced. Most people have not, you know, are not aware of how much he's produced and they don't know how to access it. So that's, you know, part of the reason why I created the Search for Beauty website, which is a repository for a lot of his writing, but there's so much that isn't there. And that's, you know, something that I have to really be careful to finish before I leave this earth because I believe that God will hold me accountable for knowing all of this knowledge and knowing that it's there and not making it accessible to other people. So, you know, the point being that this is like, it's a flow of information, a flow of knowledge, a flow of sharing. We have, you know, the scholar scholar at the very front of the line and then we have all of us behind creating bridges and creating pathways for others to find it. And it's, you know, it, you're here, like I am speaking to the people on the interactive, you're here and you've been here for the last few sessions because you know what this knowledge is and you know the power that it has to liberate you and all of that. Um, so it's really, you know, I, I think I with every situation like this where someone dies or I'm reminded of death or I'm reminded of the shortness of time, I, the, I just feel the pressure that we really have to spread this knowledge which brings me to my second story um, of, about the signs of God that happened to me this week. So last night um, I got in contact, well, I mean, I actually was friends with a woman. Um, she actually, well, she was someone that wrote to the professor way back in the early 2000s. And at that time she was struggling. She was a convert. She converted in 1995. So she and I converted at very much the same time. I converted in 1994. And so at that time, she was having a lot of issues with her, um, her relationship, her husband, um, she, with, with the very Wahhabi conservative view of Islam. And I think that her background was that she had quite, um, you know, she came from an, a, a, an abusive um, family, perhaps, um, or just at least very close-minded. And it turns out that she married someone who was very abusive. And so at that time, we, you know, counseled her, we talked to her, she became my friend, she, you know, lives in Australia, so she's literally, like, around the world, and, and then she sort of disappeared from my life, and then, interestingly, um, this past Ramadan, she found me, and so, you know, the last time we had con made contact was back in 2007, so it's been 13 years, and so we reconnected, and she shared with me that, you know, her husband was extremely abusive, he eventually left her for another woman and left her to raise four children on her own. And she was a doctor, so, you know, single mom, four kids, um, just really, you know, hard situation. But that she had made it through. Now her kids are like teenagers. And, um, you know, and she's established her practice. And so she's in a much better place. But, um, and she wears hijab. But Islamically, she was having a faith crisis. And she was struggling with her friends who were of the very conservative, you know, points of view that, you know, were telling her all kinds of very ugly things about Islam. And then she thought, she said to me, you know, I think maybe this is a time for me to re-engage with Dr. Abu Fadl's writings. Because she shared with me back when we met, you know, 13 years before, 
she had decided that the professor's view of Islam was too liberal for her and that she felt much more comfortable with, you know, the rules and sort of like the, um, you know, the typical stuff that you hear there. So interestingly, of course, 13 years passes, she sees that, you know, that version of Islam is something that caused her a lot of pain and trauma and abuse. Um, and here she is at the doorstep thinking again of, you know, thinking about what Islam means for her. So I was delighted and I was talking to her for a while and I said, yes, absolutely, you should read. And I was giving her some recommendations and we just connected and had a really nice conversation. Um, so I saw her again last night, now two months later. And I see her on Facebook sharing questions, struggling with a lot of the stuff that we deal with here that is very ugly, you know, misogynistic. Why does Islam say this about women, blah, blah, blah. And she's really like verifying her sense of Islam through people she encounters, whether it's on Facebook or her friends or debates like that. But she clearly, like the questions that she raises and the things that she's sharing with me on Facebook demonstrate to me that she has no idea what the professor has to say, or she has glimpses of it, but she hasn't taken the time to really invest and learn. And so, you know, she's spinning and feeling more comfortable, you know, and she stopped praying. She said, you know, I, I look like a Muslim, but I feel hypocritical because I don't pray. I believe that God just wants me to be a good and kind person and just to teach my kids to be kind. And, you know, and now I'm really thinking about whether Islam is right for me at all. So I was talking to the professor about this last night and, you know, it just, look at the signs of Allah, right? I mean, and the professor pointed out to me, as he often does, the obvious, and then once you hear it, you're like, oh my God, yeah, you're right. Back in 2007, she had the choice. God gave her the choice. She was at a fork in the road. You can choose the misogynistic, conservative version of Islam, or you can choose this other version of Islam. And she was clearly aware of Dr. Abulfadl. By that time in 2007, you know, the search for beauty was out, speaking in God's name was out, the great theft was out, you know, all of the sort of foundational books were out. So it was, she could have read them at that time. But she chose at that juncture in her journey that she was, that, that the ugly Islam was more authentic to her. And then she pursued her life based on that choice. So fast forward 13 years, here she is again, and God's giving her a second chance at a choice. This is a sign of God to me. I see it very clearly. It's like, okay, you didn't do it then, here's your opportunity now. And it's been two months since we made recontact and she hasn't spent the time. You know, so the professor was like, well, so she obviously made a choice based on her belief that the misogynistic version was the authentic version. And she hasn't done, she hasn't done any work to replace that. So her decision now, her decision now about Islam is based on her belief that that Islam is the only Islam. So I asked her some very pointed questions last night about her relationship with God. If she had invested in learning this other version of Islam, which she thought was too liberal before, if she has had read any books, if, you know, and specifically of the professors, since, you know, this is the path that God put her on. And how can, you know, or has she, has she investigated her own decision making? Like, did she go back in time and say, okay, at that point, I was of the mindset that the, the rules version, the, the misogynic, misogynistic version was the right version. But did she interrogate that? And, you know, or is she just assuming that's what it is? So, 
you know, I wrote her a very long message. I told her, I'm sorry to be really blunt. I know that you, you appreciate truth. But I pointed all of that out to her. And I said, you know, you can't just assume that Islam is the Islam you chose way back when and then decide to leave that. It would be a real shame. You converted to Islam. You've been Muslim as long as I have. Um, you know, and with every interaction that she and I have had, I've tried to share something that I thought would be meaningful for her that might open the door, that might make her think. But honestly, nothing replaces the investment of time and the investment of reading and the investment of building that relationship with God. Because when I asked her, well, how is your relationship with God? I see that you spend a lot of time interacting with people on Facebook and you're asking people for their experiences and their issues with Islam. But why are, you why are you judging Islam on people and not your own relationship? So when I asked her, you know, what is your relationship with God? She was like, well, you know, I think that God likes who I am and knows who I am and is fine with me being a good person. But she clearly hadn't spent any time, it's okay, baby. she hadn't spent any time investing in her relationship with God. So I told her, you know, this is what we've been doing this whole time that you and I have not been in contact. This is what, you know, I believe this cause is about is teaching this very beautiful version of Islam that you know a scholar scholar who has literally dedicated his entire life to mining this is the version not the version of ugliness and so again this just underscores to me the importance of this work and you know and I think my frustration although it's really not about me and I probably don't have a right to be frustrated but you know I see a lot of people that love to get on Facebook love to ask questions, love to just have conversations, you know, but don't invest the time in really learning. And, you know, and I, I constantly advocate for starting with reading all of the professor's books. If you believe in the school of thought, then learn it, you know, master it, have it as your filter. It's not, it's not about occult personalities. I think Muslims also have this, um, you know, thing in the back of their mind that they're afraid of cults cult personalities and afraid that if they like someone too much that that's somehow going to look bad but you know we have to go beyond that this has to be about truth and this has to be trusting in your own ability to discern and have critical thinking skills and I think that we can't be afraid you know there's just too much at stake we can't be afraid to challenge people you know have you read this have you done that you know well do you think that God's knowledge is just going to open up to you like that with just you asking a question or asking a hundred questions without, you know, investing your time. I mean, it really, you know, side, a lot of times people send me questions that they want the professor to answer, and literally some people like drop it as an email. Just the question. No, salam alaikum. Thank you for everything you do. I really appreciate your work. The professor, blah blah blah. No niceties. Just the question. And you know, it's it's also in issue manners, right? So a lot of and I won't answer those kinds of questions or those kinds of emails because it's like, okay, well, they're clearly early in their journey. You know, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I just recognize that, you know, there's a certain amount of travel that a person has to do to get to a level where they're open to this type of knowledge. And so um, that's my little vent. But anyway, so that, you know, just to say that these signs of God, I think, you know, when when they become part of you know, your life and your daily interaction, like when I see the sign of an email that is like, okay, this is not someone you should respond to, you know, I listen to those signs and I pay attention to those signs. And I found that the more you trust those signs, the more they come and the more that they really guide you in 
you know, and finding the path. And the more you ask for signs, the more God will send you signs. Because, you know, and, and I've learned from the professor that when you get signs and you refuse them or you kind of wish, you know, you kind of set them aside because you tell yourself, oh, no, it probably really wasn't a sign, you'll stop getting them because God sends you signs and you, you don't accept them. So, you know, it's a really important piece of, of learning. But that's it. So I just wanted to share those stories with you and just, you know, um, again, emphasize um, that the saddest thing for me, um, I think, when, you know, on the day that the professor leaves this planet and I wake up and I recognize that I'm alone and now I have to get busy with all the things, um, the most, the biggest regret I will have if we don't make this Quran project happen is that I will not have the blessing of working to preserve the knowledge that he spent a lifetime, you know, building a relationship with God to receive. That has to be like our number one priority as people who understand how transformative this knowledge is. So, you know, I leave you with that. And I ask you, you know, write letters to people that you know, personalize them. Um, let's, you know, I, I really believe failure is not an option. We just have to make it happen. So thank you very much for me. What, what are you again? Which, which? Oh, 16 and 17, I think. It's the one where you're just about getting into um, what, what it, you, the orphans and stuff like that. Yeah, okay. you, you left us at a cliffhanger last time. What did I say? <laughs> um, you said that oh, I had the, I had the transfer. It's like God is telling you um, <laughs> We're about to shift, and it's like you think that when you know you have wealth, that that means that you're good with God, but it could uh, mean that you're not good with God. And then you said, now we're going to shift to what you actually do have to do to be good with God. Okay, inshallah, we'll continue with Surah Al-Fajr. Um, uh, before we do that, the only thing I, I want to say, um, just a follow-up thought from what Grace said. All, I'm sure you know that talabul ilm, seeking knowledge, has rules and has an adab. But... There are certain things that um, are important to 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 remember always. We all know that it is a major sin. It is no small matter to offer a response to something that you are not qualified to offer. Allah. I mean, it couldn't have been emphasized more whether 
in the Quran or in the Sunnah of the Prophet that um, that making something halal haram or making something haram halal is a grave matter and uh, but misleading people by giving information or giving a, an opinion about something that one is not qualified to give, uh, then you, you risk having led others astray. And if you've led others astray and you were not uh, diligent in your obligations, if you were negligent in in what duties you owe knowledge, uh, then leading others astray is very serious. And it's a major sin. It's not a small thing. Um, the Prophet ﷺ reminded us that it's often what, what people say is what will end up being a major source of problems for them in the hereafter. That in fact, the, the hadith says that the, the, what makes them fall on their faces in the hereafter uh, is the, the effect of their tongues or what, what their tongues produced. And of course, that's a kinaya. What your tongue produced is, you know, it's whatever you express, whatever you write or, or articulate. And if you're articulating and saying things that are not um, uh, sound, you will be, have to answer for that. But we often forget that it is not just haram to speak without knowledge, but it is also a very serious matter who you direct a question at. If you pose a question to a person who is not qualified, and by doing so, you solicit their misconduct, you are now a participant in the final product. So if you, when you po posing a question is a very heavy responsibility. We, because we have strayed from Islamic ethics so, 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 so much, um, and we now jump on the net and we just throw out questions and we throw out answers, I wish people understand that in the hereafter, just because it's something that you articulated on Twitter or Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever, it doesn't mean that somehow you get a pass. In the same way that if you articulated a response that you have not performed your due diligence in generating that response, if you have articulated a question and directed a question at people who are not qualified, you are complicit in the 
defective and sometimes fraudulent project that has led people astray. Again, because I, I, I just people don't don't think of that. Who you direct a question at is as serious a responsibility as what questions you choose to respond to or what you say in response to a question. If you direct a question at someone, you have to be satisfied that this person is actually qualified to give you a response and to give others a response. If you are not satisfied that this is a person who is qualified, then you should not direct a question at them. You should not be a participant in an enterprise that leads to wrongful knowledge or to misleading knowledge or to fraudulent knowledge or to a fraudulent process. Al-Kalima, the word, the word is a very heavy responsibility. Remember that the Quran is a kalima, is a word. The word is a very heavy responsibility. And just spewing out words could end up landing you literally in, hell, in hellfire. Remember also that Allah reminds us repeatedly of those who amani, those whose relationship with Allah is one based on the assumption, the un, the, the the assumption that has not been sufficiently scrutinized, that has not been sufficiently vetted out, that has not been su su sufficiently interrogated. But the assumption that God is fine with them and fine with who they are. And I see that among the modern intellect, the modern mentality, uh, as part of the presumptuousness uh, and, and the egoism of the modern human being. Modern human beings, while in pre-modernity there were cultural morals that emphasized duties you you grew up in a family you learned that there were enormous amount of duties towards your family towards your society towards your tribe towards your clan well there was a shift in modernity an epistemological shift and it's a shift in our systems of knowledge where in order to free the human being so that they can work in a factory and produce capital because you needed people who are going to leave their tribes, leave their villages, leave their clans and travel to urban centers and in urban centers for those people to work to become individuals. And as individuals, you needed them to work in factories to make capital so that richer classes can enjoy that capital. So there was a shift where we emphasized the norms of individualism 
So we disconnected an individual from their family, from their tribe, from their clan, from their village, from their tradition. And as part of that, we emphasize the notion of natural rights, which happen to be individual rights. The entire Western civilization and the entire modern system of capitalism was built on that. Now, we often forget that that has nothing to do with Islam that this type of, these types of norms of individualism make you inflate your ego, but inflate it artificially. And inflate the ego so that you grow up believing you are entitled. Why do we need entitled human beings? Because capitalism is founded on consumerism. And consumerism needs entitled individuals. Consumerism needs entitled individualism. Capitalism needs consumerism. Consumerism needs entitled individuals. If you don't have entitled individuals, you're not going to get the ideal consumer for a capitalist system. And if you don't get the ideal consumer and the individualistic consumer, mind you, you're not going to get the type of capital that rich classes want. And so we think we are very cool. We think we're individual autonomous thinkers. But in reality, we're not. We're just a byproduct of a systematic process of socialization that sells us on false ideals. You as an individual, you are entitled, you take things for granted, but the part that concerns me the most is that you take not just your family for granted, not just your people for granted, not just your community for granted, but, and you also take your tradition for granted, but you also take your God for granted. And in order to have that freewheeling individual consumer that is essential for the production of capital, that is essential for the capitalist system, you need an individual that basically takes God for granted. And how do you take God for granted? You say, I believe God is fine with who I am. If I am a decent human being, I don't have to look at norms. I don't have to look at laws. I don't have to act, I don't have to take knowledge very seriously. I don't have to take my relationship with God very seriously as long as I am a good consumer. And this is why by the way in my experience the vast majority of people who have this um California like attitude towards God you know, oh, God is fine with me, are also well off financially, or at least they can pay the, their bills. And subhanAllah, this relates to Surah Al-Fajr, which we will continue, inshallah, in a second, is that when, when you are making, you're paying your bills, you're making good income, basically, then you, you, you tend to slip into the capitalist frame of mind of as long as I'm paying my bills, oh, I'm a good human being. Look, I, you know, I, I 
pay my mortgage, I pay my rent, I pay my kids' bills, I don't hurt anyone, I obey the laws of the state, I stop at a red light, I give way uh, when a passing car, uh, I don't run over people who are crossing the street, I'm a good person. Allah is fine with me. I, one of the first things I teach my students, graduate students, posing a question is a very heavy responsibility. I, I counted against you if you asked me a question that you could have answered yourself that was a little with due diligence or that you, is not thought out is not a responsible question when you go on the net when you go on the social media you pose questions you are soliciting conduct it's like when you solicit criminal conduct you are soliciting behavior if you solicit wrongful behavior by allowing, empowering those who are not competent to spew their knowledge, you, there's a responsibility. Take it seriously before in the final day, Allah says, you, you, you play the part in this. What do you have to say for yourself? And I, I, you know, it's like you observe it all the time with so many people and you feel very sad because it, it, that's a far more serious issue than a lot of the things that we actually seem to care about. A lot of the, the, the little legal technicalities because that's a moral issue. That's the setting the morals of an entire society, an entire culture, an entire civilization. That's, in, in Islamic terms, that has to do with mirath al-ard, how we actually are become the khulafat fil-ard, the, 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 the khalifas of this ard, the, the uh, inheritors of this earth. And what type of morals do we establish on the earth that we inherit? It, it, it just, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. I don't know the type of demonic insanity that social media has uh, empowered people. People spew off responses. People spew off questions. Uh, and just consider one minor thing, the part where I, you know, where my, I spent a lot of time specializing the extent to which when we spew questions empower Islamophobes to come in with their dribble. I mean, we've empowered Islamophobes because they realized that they can reach Muslims and reach Muslims' youth because they found that Muslims will ultimately give them an audience. And then we say, oh, uh, uh, we don't, you know, our faith has been tested. We're going through a faith crisis. We don't know. Well, you've asked the wrong people the wrong questions. And then you complain that you're not sure you're a Muslim anymore or that you complain that you stopped praying 
or you complain that you're a hypocrite, look at who you, what your conduct, why God allowed you to have that faith crisis, why God gave up on you. It, it, God doesn't give up on anyone without them playing the dominant role in betraying themselves. If you ask the wrong people the wrong questions, then you complain that God has abandoned me and I don't feel God anymore and I stop praying and I don't know if I'm wearing the hijab authentically and I don't know this and I don't know that. It's your fault. Look at your own responsibility. If you would have stayed, if you would have said, you know, I will not solicit knowledge from those that I am not sure about their piety, their modesty, modesty, modesty is critical. Because there are a lot of people, if they, if they have a lot of knowledge or they have a lot of data, but they're arrogant and they're ignorant, to ask, it's a contradiction in terms. There is no person who is arrogant and knowledgeable. If you are arrogant, then you're ignorant. You could have a lot of data, you could master a lot of data, you could have the Quran memorized, you could know all the tafsir, you could have the, all the stylistic and grammatical issues memorized, but if you don't have modesty, you're ignorant. So when you ask a question of someone, one of the essential and basic questions, am I asking a modest human being a truthful human being because a modest human being is also a truthful human being or am I asking a liar because they're, they're arrogant if you're arrogant then you're a liar and you're, you're ignorant I know that I will go my, to my grave preaching this but you know you, you need to warn people because they will, you, they will be held responsible they will confront Allah with these very tough questions. Not only what did you say in response to questions, but what questions did you ask and who did you direct your questions at? Okay. You know what? Let's take a two-minute break so I can cool down and then start Surat al-Fajr. I, I don't want to start Surat I don't want to go back to Surat al-Fajr. Heated up. I have that effect. <laughs> yeah, actually, you do that to me.
Assalamu alaikum everyone. Um, we have m several blank screens. Shall I wait or?
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم Where's uh, Where's Grace? Mar? You coming? بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. Grace's talks, as usual, are very meaningful, uh, but they always manage to embarrass me. Telling her she's very good at embarrassing me. We always say that one of her major jobs in our life is to help me attain higher levels of heaven, inshallah through trials and tribulations. If, job. if your spouse doesn't, um, doesn't make you suffer, then they're not doing their, your, their job. <laughs> Mashallah. My, my word of advice is always, always make sure your spouse makes you suffer. It's a 24-7 job. Okay. So as as you know, the, this is uh, the these are the the call, we'll call them the the classic or traditional halakas where I do not methodologically I do not approach the Quran in the way you saw me in the other halakas for those the newcomers at least um, because the the I I don't I leave out my own engagement with the sur um and my own um as far my own journeys uh but rather i focus on the what the tradition says about the sur and the, so and you'll see that in the way that the sur are, are approached um we started Surah Al-Fajr and we, we talked about the meaning of the, of the Surah starting with Al-Fajr and we talked about the various meanings about Walayal and Ash and we, start, we talked about the debates about Al-Shafa Wal-Watr and Wal-Layl Iza Yasr and the contrast between Al-Fajr Wal-Layl Iza Yasr which is a a, a, um, a common theme in, in the Quranic style um, where there's a symbol for light and enlightenment and also contrasted to a symbol with uh, the absence of light and the way that um, darkness, ignorance uh, spreads, proceeds, extends, flows, uh, and so on. And so we, we've, we've covered all of that. And then we've talked about Ad, 
Ad al-Ula, the first Ad, and the various debates about the meaning of Iram, and um, why the reference to Iram Zat al-Imad, the, the uh, various discourses on what Imad means, whether Ad was especially uh, large in stature, meaning physically, they're reported to have been, they're sometimes what they're referred to as ancient giants. Whether that's true or not is beside the point. I mean, they could have been just tall people. Um, or, more likely, the, the, the style of their civilization, which, as we know in, in common ancient civilizations, pillars carried a great deal of symbolism and building pillars. Pillars were not functional. They, you, you didn't have pillars just to put a roof on top of them. But pillars had numerous symbolic meanings, and we, we know, for instance, that a lot of times you build a pillar and then you engrave the pillar with an entire script. Um, pillars functioned as a text, and a text for the conveying of history, the stories of that civilization, or the aspirations of that civilizations, or the system of belief of that civilization, uh, pillars played a, a variety of functions in ancient civilizations. They were not a functional, utilistic uh, instrumentality as they are in, among modern human beings. You know, we, we don't play, build pillars just to write things on them. <clears throat> But anyway, so <clears throat> there are, as we've gone through the, uh, numerous discourses about uh, the reference to Ad being the people of pillars, whether it was the way they built their homes or the way that they expressed themselves by the, the uh, and so on. Um, and then we also talked about Qawm Thamud and the reference to the rocks and the valley. The, the most important thing to, to underscore here, in my view, is that while there are, again, considerable amount of discourses about um, what rocks in the valley means, did they just carve rocks from mountains and use them to build things? which required an advanced technology uh, in ancient civilizations, um, or they actually built uh, habitats inside of mountains or uh, carved mountains to uh, create mausoleums or to create burial places or to create homes or to create temples. Um, so. All of that, but it's an, an indication of the strength that Samud in, enjoyed. Then we talked about the people who are often referred to in the Quran as a symbol of oppression and despotism. And these are the people of the Pharaoh. Uh, the ancient, the particularly Pharaonic civilizations which 
for a variety of reasons, there, there is a, a, a long embedded tradition uh, in Pharaonic Egypt of um, autocracy and despotism. And despotism that often resulted in um, severe and harsh laws and uh, systematic systems of oppression. And the, the reference in the Quran to the people of the Pharaoh as spreading corruption on earth. And there is a, a long Quranic hermeneutic about injustice and the relationship, the embellic relationship between injustice, the lack of justice, oppression, despotism, and corrupting the earth. Um, and remember, because I, I emphasize this a lot, that Surat al-Fajr, among the earliest revelations of the Quran, early Meccan period, um, like other early Meccan period, are establishing the constitutional outlook of Muslims. We, we often ignore the fact that these short surah were designed to establish foundational principles, foundational outlooks, if you want to call them epistemic outlooks. They are designed to shape the world, the way that you see the world. So instead of admiring, as uh, the ancient Arabs, uh, pre-modern, I mean, sorry, uh, pre-Islamic Arabs would do, uh, instead of admiring Qawm Samud, instead of admiring Qawm Ad, instead of admiring the power of the Pharaoh, the Quran was shifting your outlook to actually saying, these are not people worthy of admiration. Because also advanced technologically and also advanced organizationally, they were unjust people. They were oppressive people. So, in fact, they're not worthy of admiration, quite the opposite. And then the, the, the message directed to Meccans and the message directed to the Prophet Muhammad and the message then by extension directed to all people that will come after the Prophet that although these civilizations prospered rose to great heights, they forget that there is a God and that this God observes all, evaluates all, and ultimately responds to injustice by allowing people to suffer the consequences of that injustice with God's mercy, which is, I mean, God's mercy is always there. So as the, as the Quran tells us, if God would allow people to suffer the consequences of their actions, the life on this earth would have been destroyed a long time ago. So God's mercy is always there mitigating and modifying. However, and we talked about that, that ultimately the, the consequences of injustice are destruction. And, of course, the, the Meccans are being warned about this. The Meccans don't know what will come in the future. They don't know that, in fact, they will not be destroyed like, like Qawm Ad or Thamud or uh, the, the pharaohs. Uh, 
but at the time that Surat al-Balad is, is revealed, or Surat al-Fajr is revealed, it is warning them that their fate could be like these past civilizations which were more technologically advanced and more sophisticated than uh, Quraysh itself, the, the people of the Prophet Okay. Then we we got into into a further um, elucidation by the Quran as to what was the moral failure of these past civilizations. And here is where the lesson becomes not just a comment to the Meccans or the Qurayshis, but as often the Quran does, it uses history to tell us something about all future civilizations. What was a significant part of that moral failure? The moral failure that As for human beings, whenever God tests them, إِذَا مَبْتَلَاهُ رَبُّهُ فَأَكْرَمَهُ وَنَعَمَهُ يَقُولُ رَبِّي أَكْرَمًا وَأَمَّا إِذَا مَبْتَلَاهُ فَقَدْرَ عَلَيْهِ رِزْقَهُ فَيَقُولُ رَبِّي أَهَانًا When human beings, whenever the Lord tests them and honors them and blesses them, they say, and they say here means they think, my Lord has honored me. And whenever the Lord tries human beings and imposes hardship on them, they say, the Lord has abased me. So what is the issue here? The issue is that for these civilizations, as happens often with all civilizations, they equated between material prosperity and their status with God. So when God allowed them to prosper, they thought that I am being honored by God because I deserve it. I'm a good person. I deserve it. On the other hand, when there is hardship, then they start thinking, well, I don't know if God likes me. I don't know if God is being fair to me. I don't know if, why, is, why does God do this to me? So, and here, this is where the lesson, and the reason the Quran shifts to Ammal Insan, and all human beings, it's transitioning from the, the historical discourse to an ongoing lesson Material wealth, as Allah could test you with riches, as could Allah test you with hardship. And in fact, the, the, the test of success, when you are being tested with success, it's actually much harder. Because the temptation 
that human beings suffer from is whenever the Allah gives them bounties, whenever Allah provides them with material wealth, um, they assume that they are that they deserve it, that they are entitled to it, that they are superior, that they are um, better human beings. And, and we saw this. I mean, we see this in in. In rather painful ways, if you've ever lived in the Arab Gulf countries, in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or the Emirates or Bahrain and so on, you are struck by the racism uh, of uh, the citizens of these countries. And when I say racism, I mean that just because Allah gave them material wealth, Kuwaitis, Saudis, Emiratis, I'm, with, I'm sure exceptions, but I mean this is this is the experience that I've had. Uh, will think of themselves as better than Egyptians, Palestinians, Pakistanis, Indians, Sri Lankans, Bangladeshis. They think of themselves as superior human beings. Why? Because of material wealth, and, and that's a serious problem, and that's part of corrupting the earth. And that's part of what will earn you Allah in Allah Billabrimsad will earn you God's doom. Now we often imagine that you are born in the period in which the civilization is enjoying prosperity. Your experience is well, oh you know, whatever I want, God gives me. You know, I am I, I am a Saudi. I am a Kuwaiti. I I'm, uh, I make money left and right. I have a huge bank account. I'm, I, you know, you can't compare me to these inferior races that are not as rich as I am. But imagine that you are born at the time of God's anger, and that's the period that I think a lot of us Muslims have been born into, and that's where you, a lot of people struggle with their faith because they think, well, you know, I, I do dua and Allah doesn't answer the dua. Uh, we go from one suffering to another. Ayyamillah, God's time is different than our time. And sadly, part of what you could be born in a period of punishment and in a period in which Allah is not answering the dua of a people who have deserved doom. And the only thing you can do in that period is to persevere, to work for a change, to earn God's favor so that Allah will end the curse, if you will. But it is part of wisdom is to understand your place in history. The Quran doesn't tell us tell, tell us stories of past nations to entertain us. The Quran doesn't tell us about Iram and Imad and Thamud and, and Fir'aun and Qawm Musa and Qawm Lut and the, you know, the, to, to entertain us. The Quran tells us these stories to build our character and to build our epistemic worldview and to allow us to understand our moral position. And part of that is to reflect upon your position in history and whether you are born in an ascending curve or a descending curve.
And that will place your iman in a, in, in, a, in a different situation because your, your, your expectations are drawn accordingly. Anyway, so the Quran often emphasizes this theme as we've mentioned in, in the last halakas that uh, often success and material wealth is a test from God. And in fact, it sometimes, in some situations, material success could be a sign that you are not in, good, in a good place with God at all. That in fact, God doesn't, has stopped caring about your fate and so allows you all the material wealth you wish. That, there are different suwar that talk about this, this situation, so we'll leave it till then. But the, 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 there is no correlation between material wealth and your status with God. And so what are some of the major things of these past nations is that they assumed that material wealth means that they, are, they don't have to think about God very seriously and they don't have to think about the consequences that God has in reserve for them. Okay. Now, where we stopped is nay, you do not honor the orphan you, nay, you do not honor the orphan, nor do you urge the feeding of the indigent, and you devour your, inher your inheritance with rapacious devouring and love wealth with abounding love. This is the translation of the study Quran, by the way, in case you're wondering. Okay. You notice the shift in the Quranic style from first a reference to history, then a, transi a transition commentary that sort of takes you from history to the present and the future, and then a shift in style to commenting about some of the major human psychological failures. Failures that allow us to understand why these past civilizations were doomed, why material wealth is not an indication of your status with the Lord, and what are these major human failures. And it is very important here that we pay attention to each of them. And I'll, I'll tell you some of the major um, interesting discourses about, about these. Um, anyway. Um, first, So many commentators note that the Quran often when it comes to poverty, it doesn't just emphasize 
the feeding of the poor, but introduces an active form. Tahaduna literally means you urge one another. Now, so what is the social expectation here? The social expectation is that the civilization that was created, the society, the community, has a public norm or a public morality that considers it an obligation to take care of the poor. Tahaduna, you urge one another. So it is not enough that the rich, out of a feeling of charity, give to the poor. But you literally build your social norms where society feels that the poor is the responsibility of society. So, whether Ad Thamud, Qawm Fur'aun, or, or any other society for that matter, the issue is not how much you give to the poor at, at this point or that point. The issue is whether that the norms, the social norms that have been established in that society considers it an obligation to take care of the poor or not. So, When you go to certain countries, you know, I, I'm, as you know, I'm from Egypt. And you go to a country like Egypt and you see some people driving Mercedes, very expensive cars. And then you see street children in the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions. Immediately, uh, you need not go further that society cannot be blessed by Allah. It, it is impossible. A society in which there is such a huge disparity, in which there is not a collective norm, social collective social norm that feels that the the though the indigent are the collective responsibility of society at large cannot be blessed by Allah. When people do dua in countries where you have such a huge disparity in wealth, they say, Ya Allah, you know, Unsur, uh, uh, Allah give victory to our armies. Allah, give a man to our society. Give peace and security to our society. Allah, protect our people. Allah, protect our nation. If in that society, some people are driving Mercedes Benz and other people are living in the streets homeless or in shanty towns, you need not go any further. It is within Islamic theology, it is an impossibility that Allah will answer these prayers. And if we had lived with the norms and morality of the Quran, 
we would understand that this society is closer to Qawm Fir'aun and Qawm Thamud and Qawm Ad than it is to any other society. I emphasize this because it is not just an individual matter. It is a social, collective, moral issue. If you are in a society in which you hear people say, well, what do you want us to do? You know, I give what I can. Or, well, you know, the poor are lazy. Or, well, why don't they go find jobs? Or, you know, you have servant khadamat as you have servant girls in, in countries like Egypt. You know, the, the servant girls come from villages, from very poor families, and they're not treated well. They're treated like, like slaves. And then you raise your hands in dua to Allah. You're not going to be answered. That is an unjust situation. And Allah does not answer the prayers of the unjust. And the fact that your family happens to be among the rich is no indication that Allah is pleased with you. In the same way that you are happen to have been born in a poor family, in an indigent family, in a homeless family, in a family that lives in a shanty town, is no indication that Allah is angry with you. In fact, you could be far closer to Allah than the rich. Oh, I, I overlooked, I forgot one part um, that is emphasized by a number of theologian, theologians. They say that Qom Ad and Thamud and Qom Fir'aun, like, again, a symbol for doomed people, not, not these specific tribes, but a symbol for doomed people, is that when... When they are afflicted with hardship, their attitude becomes a tabajjuh halallah. That when they are afflicted with hardship, they become, instead of humbled, they become indignant. And when they become indignant, they say effectively their attitude towards God. Well, I'm not sure that there is a God if I have to go through these hardships. I, I hear this, by the way, from people, um, unfortunately, you know, some Syrian friends who say, well, you know, after the, the, what happened in Syria with the refugees and so on, I'm not sure Allah exists or, or things like that. I mean, I consider these toxic people, so I don't, you know, I, I, I try to, if I can't help guide them, then I stay away from them. Um, but that al-qawl al-qabih was coupled, the, the, the ugly attitude was coupled with ugly deeds. It's a minor point, but it's a point that a lot of theologians make about Surah Al-Fajr. Okay, so what are the ugly deeds? You don't, you didn't create a social norm that urges the feeding of the poor. And this I want to emphasize because this actually is a systematic social problem. A lot of people, 
their attitude towards inheritance is often an attitude um, that is thoroughly immoral. In other words, they, people feel at liberty to take what is not their due to, for instance, you know, you, you have siblings and then you come up with excuses. Oh, my brother or my sister, they make better money than I do. So if I, you know, I'm going to steal this inheritance or that, I'm going to take this house or take this farm or take whatever, whatever the inheritance is. The issue of inheritance is emphasized on justice and fairness inheritance, meticulous piety with inheritance is a, is one of those things that is is emphasized in the Quranic ethics and Quranic morality underscored time and time again whenever you see a people who pounce on inheritance who deny each other their their rightful inheritance whether they're siblings whether they're parents whether they're from children to parents or parents to children uh, whether they're cousins, whether they're, and especially, of course, if that inheritance belongs to orphans, but even if it doesn't belong to inheritance. That among these moral failures is that you steal each other's inheritance. And sadly, I've known a lot of people in my life, some of them are even family whose attitude when it came, when it comes to inheritance is disgusting if they get an opportunity to steal a, a, an apartment they do if they get an opportunity to steal furniture they do if they get an opportunity to steal some money in the bank or stocks they do if they knew as the prophet said that every piece of inheritance you take that is not your due is a piece of hellfire This is a major sin. Whatever you do in your life, be meticulous about what inheritance you take possession of. Again, signs of a failing society. Um, Egyptian society is notorious for the way people steal each other's inheritance. Um, notorious and again a society my, my belief Allah doesn't answer the prayers of a society like that uh, the, uh, the commentaries always say that the, when, the, when you get to that point where you steal inheritance in that way you no longer distinguish it's not even that you no longer care but you no longer are able to distinguish between what is halal and haram. You simply assume that you're entitled to this or entitled to that, regardless of what the divine law says about the law of inheritance. Um, Among the, uh, the, there was a poet, sort of a, a troublemaking poet, 
but his poetry I, I like. His name is Ahmed ibn Rawandi. Um, commented about Surah Al-Fajr. I'm just going to say recite the 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 poetry in Arabic and then sort of translate it uh, about Surah Al-Fajr and it's that particular part. The, uh, فأما الإنسان إذا ما إذا ما ابتلاه ربه فأكرمه فنعمه فيقول ربي أكرما وما إذا ما ابتلاه فقدر عليه رزقه فيقول ربي أهانا كلا بل لا تكرمون اليتيم ولا تحاضون على طعام المسكين ولا تأكلون التراث أكلا لما وتحبون المال حب جمة. so it says كم عاقل من كم عاقل عاقل أعيت مذاهبه وجاهل جاهل تلقاه مرزوقا هذا الذي ترك الأفهام حائرة what he's saying is that if you want to be, if we want to be frank about it, the, f- the fact that people become confused about the dynamic between material wealth and whether God loves them or cares about them or is happy with them or not, if we want to be honest about it, in fact, this this test, this um, this challenge, Sayyar al-Alim in Nihrira Zindiqa has made so many scholars effectively a Zindiq. A Zindiq is a, is like a hypocrite who is who has become very um, sinful. Um, is, is, in other words, even scholars become deceived so that scholars, for instance, who find themselves in, in, um, um, in a good place with people of wealth and power, and as a result, they're making good money, they tend to assume that they, that they are fine with Allah and to take liberties with Allah's ethics and Allah's morality and become corrupt. While a lot of scholars, because of the type of hardship they go through in life and the challenges and the difficulties that they go through in life, their faith become tested. And whether they admit it or not, they often start doubting whether... In fact, Allah cares about them. And so Ahmad ibn Rawandi is sort of taking, pointing the gaze or taking, you know, that flashlight and pointing it at scholars and saying, you know, if we're going to be truthful about it, if this test is hard, it's particularly hard among scholars, which I guess resonates with me. Um, anyway. Note that the Quran, whenever it it addresses poverty, systematically and consistently it emphasizes social societal attitudes towards orphans, the most disempowered group of minors. In Quranic usage, in, in Islamic law, an orphan is someone whose father has died, regardless of their age. In Quranic usage, an orphan is a child who has lost either mother or father, in contrast to Islamic law. 
So in Quranic ethics, and because I, I there's a story I, I had one time, a long time ago with someone who's telling me that what they did is not really haram because they stole the money of someone who had lost their mother but not their father, so technically they're not an orphan. Um, that's because they're ignorant, the difference between the legal definition and Quranic definition. In, in the Quran, and it's not just a matter of what you do individually towards orphan, but what type of society you've created vis-a-vis orphans. If orphans are not taken care of through your social institutions, then you become like Qom, Iram, and Ad, and so on. As Imam al-Ghazali says, if societies through whatever time period took the Quranic measurements and said, are we closer to Qawm Ad or Qawm Fur'aun or are we closer to Qawm al-Rasul the people of the Prophet? People, societies, would be able to measure whether they are in good standing with God or not. It is not an issue of whether your society recites Quran, whether your society um, you know, calls for prayer, whether your society has public displays of piety. Note that in the Quran, systematically and consistently, whether you are closer to the prototype of the cursed people, Ad, Samud, and so on, are these measures, the orphans, the poor, the inheritance, in other sewer, the wayfarer, in other sewer, even prisoners of war, in other sewer, slaves. That is the measure of whether your society is closer to the doomed society or a society closer to the society of the Prophet. Okay, um, some people said that Surah Al-Fajr, when it um, when it talks about that you don't honor the orphan and you don't take care of the poor and that you uh, steal inheritance or you eat up inheritance, you consume, devour inheritance uh, without conscience, that Surah Al-Fajr, it was occasioned by an event that took place in Mecca where um, the tribes of Bani Tamim and Fazara, when they vi- they visited with the Prophet ﷺ and Bani Tamim and Fazara or representative from Bani Tamim and Fazara told the Prophet ﷺ, we are willing to sit and listen to you or listen to you what you have to say about your um, your prophecy, however, on the condition that you stop hanging around with poor people. They what they meant were people like Bilal, former slaves and indigent people and orphans. In other words, what turns us off about you, Muhammad, 
what's a turn off for us about you, Muhammad, is that you're surrounded by poor people. And we are the honorable people of Bani, Bani Tamim and Fazara. We would be perhaps willing to open, we would be perhaps open to your message if it wasn't so embarrassing because you hang around poor people all the time. Some commentators said that Surat al-Fajr was partly in response to this by basically condemning the conduct of Bani Tamim and Fazara and reminding the, the, the because the Prophet then responds to Bani Tamim and Fazara and says that that there is no way that he is going to disassociate himself from uh, um, the the indigent and the powerless in, in Mecca. Whether that, in fact, is one of the occasions for revelation in Surat, for Surat al-Fajr, I tend to doubt that, because that there are several surah that have been reported to have been occasioned by that incident. While I do think that the historical event of Wafd, the, the delegation that was sent by Bani Tadmim and Fazara and what they told the Prophet and what the Prophet told them is historic, is historic. In other words, I do believe it happened. But I don't know that Surah Al-Fajr was revealed to address that particularity. But anyway, you can see the ways that it is clearly relevant and clearly pertinent to that type of situation. And it goes back again to what type of social uh, structure you create to create a social dynamic in which the poor are looked down upon, are considered um, a, um, an embarrassment, where the rich feel entitled, feel superior, or do you create a society that's more egalitarian? That, again, is an indication. It's like a barometer. Are you closer to that model or to this model? Okay. Okay. Then the, uh, the Qur'an shifts. Again, this is classic of the style, of the Qur'anic style. History, a moral lesson that applies to the historical example, then a deriving from the historical example, a universal moral lesson that applies in perpetuity. Um... And then the consequences, the results of what happens if you fail the moral standards set out by the Quran. So, when the earth is ground up or grinding upon grinding, I think that's a good translation. And your Lord comes with the angels row upon row. And hell is brought forth that day. That day man will remember, yet hence will the remembrance avail them. 
يومئذ يتذكر الإنسان وأن له الذكرى يقول يا ليتني قدمت لحياتي and then it goes on from there. Okay, so let's pause here. Most of the Quranic discourses in that very powerful imagery وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ وَالْمَلَكُ صَفًّا صَفًّا وَجِيءَ يَوْمَئِذٍ بِجَهَنَّمٍ is why does it say وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ and your Lord will come and the angels row upon row and why does it say وَجِيءَ يَوْمَئِذٍ بِجَهَنَّمٍ that hellfire will be brought forth To summarize a, a great deal that you find written about this, and they go into long debates about grammar and style and all types of things like that, but we don't need, I mean, that would take us a long time and with very little yield. Um, when it says, وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ does that is that a literal reference? Will hell be actually brought forth? Or is this symbolic reference? There is there a hadith that um, convey the comment on Surah Al-Fajr with some powerful imagery if you will that so for instance this hadith says and it's there it's a long hadith that in uh, in the hereafter the um, people will stand according to that hadith for 70 years awaiting to be judged and that hell will be brought forth will be literally being dragged forward by these powerful angels uh, who look very scary and as if they're carrying health, hell forward. And that, of course, it will be a very terrifying sight that after 70 years of waiting to be judged, seeing hell being brought forth will absolutely discombobulate um, those who are not in good standing with Allah and that at that moment those who are in good standing with Allah will be showered with tranquility and peace and and so on. Now there, uh, this hadith is not of, uh, there, there's a lot of problems with the authenticity of this hadith. If I was um, if you look at many of the Wahhabi scholars, the the um, the co commentators, especially from Saudi, they go at great lengths with on this hadith. They they take it very literally, very seriously, and uh, there are undeniable problems with the isnad of this hadith, with the transmission of this hadith. Allah Alam, only Allah knows best, but it is my belief that the Prophet ﷺ didn't actually say this hadith. So I'm not going to go, and it's a very long hadith, and I've, 
you know, I, I have it here, but that's basically the essential imagery of it. Most Usulis, Al-Mataridi, for instance, in his, in, in his tafsir, um, as well as Al-Amidi, as well as Al-Razi, who uh, have rejected the authenticity of this hadith and don't rely on it. Uh, you, you'll find the hadith cited in Ibn Kathir and, and Al-Tabari without necessarily saying anything about whether it's authentic or not. They just reproduce it. So, unless you are from the literal school of thought and, and the Ahlul Hadith who take the meaning to be very literal, that in fact, you will be in a place where God will come forward, the, the, the throne of God being carried by these powerful angels, um, preceded by rows and rows of angels. God will come th forward in a throne and hell will come forward being carried by other angels. You could follow that school of thought. It's not the school of thought that I follow. And if you don't, then we go to the alternative interpretation. And the alternative interpretation basically says that it doesn't refer to a physical coming forward. In Arabic, you can say or or even that means the divine reality will manifest. Whether in fact God will manifest, that's a different question. But the truth of divinity will manifest. Whether these, the, the angels stand in actual lines or in, in, a, in, a, in substantial numbers, because Safa and Safa could either refer to actual lines or to substantial numbers in Arabic uh, and in, in literary usage. Um, it's a subtle point, but it's, a, it's a, an important point that darkness or punishment doesn't manifest through its internal truth while divine reality was ma will manifest as the origin and truth of things in 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 life on earth the light is the actual active force that has to penetrate the darkness so in the absence of light there is darkness so what is the normal state of affairs? It's darkness. What is the active energy? It's light. So the divine has to come upon the darkness to vanquish the darkness. 
in the hereafter, according to these theologians, it's exactly the opposite. Light is the natural condition and darkness is the exception that has to come forward and it will not come forward unless Allah allows it to come forward. So hellfire is the exception. It's not the natural state of things. So if you, you know, if you want to just draw the imagery in your mind, in earth it's like a dark room and you have to turn on a flashlight for divinity to exist. In the hereafter it's a lit room and, you, and darkness has to actually proceed forward in order for it to exist. So that is the meaning We talk about layers of meaning. I should emphasize that with a lot of Sufis, so for instance, if you look at Tafsir al-Janabizi, who is a very interesting Sufi Tafsir, says, about وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ وَجِيءَ بِجَهَنَّمِ المضاف الذي I'm just going to read it in Arabic and then explain جَاءَ رَبُّكَ المضاف الذي هو القائم في, في وجودك وقد سماه الصوفية بالفكر والحضور والسكينة وهو ملكوت ولي الأمر ولا يظهر على السالك إلا بعد موته الاختياري فتتفتح ببصيرته الأخروية فيرى ما لا يراه غيره so what he's saying is that what the Quran is talking about, the, 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 a lot of Sufis like Janabizi took this to a different level of meaning and said when Allah says وَجَاءَ رَبُّكَ وَالْمَلَكُ صَفًّا صَفًّا وَجِيءَ بِجَهَنَّمْ he says that, in fact, they take what al-ardu as not necessarily um, reference to the hereafter or to yawm al-qiyamah. But they say it is possible that your earth would be shaken in this life. And how would your earth be shaken in this life? is that you go through the trials and tribulations of rebirth. And the trials of tribulations and rebirth would lead to what they call voluntary death. So you, you actually reach a point where your the voluntary death that you undertake would lead to a point of being reborn what where you see the divine presence and the angelic presence and you see the truth of hellfire the truth of um damnation, the truth of being away from the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. You see it as hudur and, and sakina. So it is a state of mind and a state of soul where 
before your actual death, you undergo a voluntary death and you see the truth of things in the presence of the Lord and the angelic presence as the true reality of things before the hereafter. So you find in Sufi discourses a great emphasis on in, in emphasizing to the murid, to the seeker, don't wait till death and, and rebirth, don't wait till the hereafter for you to undergo the experience of seeing God and Al-Malak Safa Safa, your goal, your journey is to achieve that in the here now, before the hereafter. Among a lot, you know, the unless you 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 grow you grow up studying Sufi commentaries. Uh, that's not something that the average Muslim is exposed to when you study Surah Al-Fajr, but it, it's fascinating, and it's it's um, you know we we it tells you the the many different ways that the Quranic text has inspired so many different schools of thought in different trajectories and 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 layers and of meaning. Um, and this is so when they say you know and so that's what they're talking about uh, okay yeah this, this deserves a pause When Allah says, at that point, human being will remember. How did he translate it? Remember, and hence the remembers, the remembrance avail him or her. At that point, you will remember. But what will this remembrance avail you? First layer of meaning is that it's straightforward enough that at that point, the hereafter, the entire uh, tape or the entire um, journey of your life and you will be overcome by the way, by, by overcome by the thoughts or by the reflections about the lost opportunities in your life. If only I would have done this and this, I could have been in a much better standing in the hereafter. So that's the, the most straightforward meaning and the most direct one. Um, you will have a perfect remembrance as you will have a perfect accountability. And that the, the, the perfect remembrance will be a remembrance of lost opportunities, or that will, which that's what will overcome human emotion and human thought. 
there are a number of commentators. Did I write it down somewhere? I didn't write the language, so I'm just going to explain it. Who say that tied to, to the Sufi orientation, uh, although it's not strictly Sufis that, that say that, I mean, uh, Sufis and others, that say that the remembrance will be not just of lost opportunities in your worldly life, but it will be a remembrance or the, 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 a reflection upon all the different ways that you start pleading your case. Allow me to make up. So it's as if you are pleading with the angels or pleading with God. Give me now the opportunity to make up for my past sins that you are overcome by pleading your case and saying, okay, you know, let's take the simplest example. I know I didn't pray. Just let me do my prayers, my, my, my missed prayers now. And whether, you know, whether it's this or that, I tend to think it's both. One doesn't exclude the other. Sufis like Al-Janabizi and like Al-Jilani say, going on with their theme of the voluntary death and voluntary rebirth before your actual death and your rebirth in the hereafter, that it is impossible for a person to reach a point of enlightenment, a point of shuhud, Hudur and Shuhud, a point where you are actually conscious and fully aware of the divine in your life, without a zikra, without going through a process of remembrance, remembering and taking account of your past sins and failures, and why you have failed in the way you failed and sinned the way you sinned. So, in a lot of Sufi tariqas, it is not simply enough to say, I proclaim tawbah, I, I ask God for forgiveness, without coming to terms with how you sinned and why you sinned. Ideally, of course, in Sufi tariqas, you do this with your sheikh, that you have a sheikh that guides you through the process of remembrance, the process of remembrance, and taking account of the ways that you failed and why you failed. Um, and in fact, in a lot of Sufi tariqas, Janabizi, for instance, goes at, at some length about how it's very dangerous to do this on your own without the guidance of a sheikh. Uh, but that's, that takes us to a, a different... Um, that, that's a much bigger topic. Okay.
most important so the, that day uh, how do you that day none punishes as God punishes or that's that's the way he chose to translate it and none binds as God binds okay you can tell from the translation that that's one way to understand that the these ads that what it's saying is that no one will punish the way God punishes. In other words, the punishment of your God and the binding of your God um, is equal to none. And it's clearly talking about the hereafter. But that's not the, the only way that, that these ayat were understood. Some understood that in relation to and said that what these ayat are talking about is that because you yourself will remember your own sins and your own misconduct and your own failures, that that remembrance will be your true source of torment. And that none of the torments that you confront in the hereafter are equal to the torment of the conscience as it remembers its own failures. So when it says, لَا يُعَذِّبُ عَذَابَهُ أَحَدُ وَلَا يُوثِقُ وَثَاقَهُ أَحَدُ That it is saying, you will become your own tormentor because of your memories. And you effectively, in, as you, your own conscience, will become what binds you. In other words, what, what, what shackles you. What, what imposes the punishment upon you. So that, between those who said that, no, it's referring to the way God punishes and the way that remembrance is the punishment in itself. Or that's what Surah Al-Fajr is, is calling our attention to. A third interpretation is that It is not necessarily the remembrance that will be the punishment or the binding, but it is saying that, well, it is actually, I guess it is related to يتذكروا أن الله ذكرى, but they say it's not necessarily the remembrance, but the process of your kitab testifying against you. Or in, in as some some of us tafsir say that as your hands and your arms and your legs and your body bears witness against you, that is the reference to لا يعذب عذابه أحد ولا يوثق وثاقه أحد. In other words, you go through the torment of having to witness against yourself, having to testify against yourself. Um, and that that's what these ayat are referring to. Okay. Many of the Sufi tafsirs in particular say that لا يعذب عذابه أحد ولا يوثق وثاقه أحد is tied to the reference in Surah Al-Fajr, لِلنَّفْسِ اللَّوَّامَةِ uh, 
tied to the concept of nafs al-lawama. So, and I'll explain that in a second. Not the reference, but tied to the concept of nafs al-lawama. So, when it says, when then the Quran shifts give, and, and as often the Quran does, when it talks about those who are being punished, it always contrasts them to those who are not punished. Or when it, ta- when it ever talks about hellfire, it always talks about salvation. The Quran never talks about punishment without the contrast to punishment. Um, so the contrast here is يَا إِيَّتُهُ النَّفْسُ الْمُطْمَئِنَّ إِرْجَعِي إِلَىٰ رَبِّكِ رَاضِيَةً مَرْضِيَةً فَادْخُلِي فِي عِبَادِي وَادْخُلِي جَنَّتِي The translation O soul at peace, return unto thy Lord content, um, enter my, into my servants, or enter my servants, and enter my heavens. One, these ayat have become quite famous in the modern age. Uh, you often find on gravestones, people will carve, Ya ayatuhan nafsun mutma'inna turjari ila rabbiki radiyatan mardiyya. Um, you know, whatever you think of that practice, uh, I, uh, I guess it's a prayer that, in fact, the, the deceased is among nafsul mutmainna. What is the reference to nafsul mutmainna at the most basic level? A reference to, in the same way you've contrasted those who have a great deal of tribulation because of their conduct in their life. Uh, contrast that to that soul that will actually remember its life and not have much to be tormented by. It's an ideal, if you will. So, for instance, one of the narratives about this is is Abu Bakr, um, when he heard these verses, he told the Prophet, how beautiful this image. Jamilun hada. This is so so gorgeous to imagine a soul that I can actually remember its past and feel tranquil and at peace. And the Prophet reportedly then tells Abu Bakr, Innaka minhum, that you are among those people. I mean, of course, it's a beautiful thing. To, to receive that type of bushra, that, that type of good news. Um, I mean, if, if you're gonna dream of something, if you're gonna covet something, can you possibly covet or dream of something more powerful than to end up in the hereafter and to then remember your life and you don't have an orphan that you've persecuted or that you've been unfair to. You don't have poor people that can hold you to account. You don't have inheritance that you stole. You don't have prayers that you've missed. You don't have people that you backbited or, or that you've talked about ill. You, you, you haven't slandered people. You haven't been a hypocrite. You haven't been arrogant. I mean... The, the, to actually remember your life and to say, oh, I'm at peace, I'm tranquil, that's 
an aspiration. And I and note here how this is tied to the theme of arrogance because it takes a truthful human being to say that's something I really not sure if I can reach that standard, but it's what I dream of. An arrogant soul would say, why not? I'm one of them. I would submit to you that any person that listens to these ayat and says, no problem, I belong in that group, is in deep trouble. I think any human being that listens to these ayat and says, no problem, I have nothing to be sorry about, I have nothing that's going to torment me, I will have the dhikra, I will remember my life and it will be no problem, I'm among the nafs al-mutma'inna, um, they're in trouble. That's why I, I'm troubled when I see people refer to their uh, loved ones who have passed away describing them as a nafs al-mutma'inna rja'i ila rabbiki radiyatan mardiyya. I don't know. I mean, that type of just presumptuousness troubles me. And it just might be me. I, I don't know. It's, it's, um, I understand the sentiment. I understand the sentiment. You, you want it for your loved one. But it's very presumptuous. Um, who among us can actually remember their life and, and, and be so... Um, anyway, there is a debate in the tafasir. Uh, you know, uh, the tafsir often go at some length about points like this, whether an-nafsul mutma'inna is a reference to a soul after, after being informed by God that it's among the, the um, in other words, imagine you come in the hereafter. Is it talking about those class of people who realize that they are that tranquil soul? They, they, they remember their life and they remember that they, they realize that they really have nothing to be sorry about. Um, is it before being judged by God or after being judged by God? When it refers to nafs al-mutma'inna, is it talking about the class of people? So, for instance, if you imagine martyrs, shuhada, is it talking about those people who know that they're martyrs and they come in the hereafter and they know that they're martyrs, their sins are forgiven? So, is it the class of people that know they're among the, 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 um, uh, the saved and the fortunate ones before being judged or after being judged. You find that the Fasir going and they get into these arguments about grammar, whether it is this or that or both. I, I don't know the technicalities of these debates often can take away from the beautific image and take away from the... Um, because they, they're often the arguments go into very detailed arguments about grammar. And, um, and I know that scholars have to do that, but just be aware that that is a, a, a debate that, uh, and, you know, theologians 
um, and and then how can you have a a a soul that realizes it's doomed before it is judged, uh, and then you get into these debates that well you know you realize because in the hereafter you appear and either your book is before you or behind you in other words you you know whether you're in trouble or not even before you were judged so that's the theological debate that often goes on but i don't think it's essential for us uh unless you are from a certain school of thought okay what else um we can't leave the way the the sufi interpretations which emphasize to a great deal, you find a great deal, a, a huge Sufi discourse about the reference to nafsul mutma'inna irja'i ila rabbiki radiyatan mardiyya. The reason that you find a great deal of discourse because that's always tied to the reference to the Quran to nafsul lawama. So, In Sufi discourses on Surah Al-Fajr, they always talk about that the Quranic reference to in nafsul mutma'inna, the the tranquil soul, is a reference. They couple it with other parts of the Quran, and say that this this is a reference to tarajat al-nafs wa maratib al-nafs the different levels and scales that the soul is capable of attaining. And the three main stages, al-nafsul ammara, al-nafsul lawama, and al-nafsul mutma'inna. Al-nafsul ammara is a nafs that is basically a servant to its whims. Whenever the shaitan comes and tells you, do, entices you to do haram, you have very low resistance and you oblige. That's a nafs al-ammara, al-ammara bisu' as the, the, the nafs al-lawama is the struggling soul, a soul that wins at times, loses at times, that recognizes it, that commits sins, but then feels bad about what it's done. And in nafsul mutma'inna is the soul that has gained mastery, that it is no longer amara, that it's no longer easily enticed, and it is no longer engaged in a sometimes winning battle, sometimes losing battle, but is a soul that is ascending in alam al-shuhud wal-hudur that now has reached a plateau where it is able to ascend to a greater levels of enlightenment. So, and I'll explain why this entire debate is important in the context of Surah Al-Fajr in a second. So they, they say that the reference to al-nafsul mutma'inna 
is not necessarily a reference to what happens simply in the hereafter, but rather is a reference, and I've actually written it down, لعالم الفكر والحضور تمثل ملكوت ولي الأمر في صدر السالك وحصوله صورة الله إما بالمباينة أو نحو الاتصال أو الاتحاد أو الوحدة. So what they're saying is that in fact that reference, that good tidings to النفس المطمئنة is speaking not just to those who die and come in hereafter, are recreated in the hereafter or reborn in the hereafter. But it's actually talking to people in the here now, in this life. And it is telling them that through al-fikr wal-hudur, this is a greater, a great simplification, but al-fikr through the process of reflection and hudur is dhikr and presence through, through the experience of divinity. Become go through the experience, go through the experiences of al-mubayana, al-ittisal, wal-ittihad, and al-wahda, the four. Mubayana is to experience divinity, and again, I'm grossly simplifying, but so you get a sense of what the tafsir say. Al-mubayana is through the experience of divinity in your lifetime. But an experience where you perceive divinity, you see the light, but you don't necessarily are able to communicate with the light. In order to communicate with the light, you need to go beyond the mubayana, you need to go to the ittisal. The ittisal is where the divine actually communicates with you. From ittisal, you are able then to aspire to al-ittihad. Al-ittihad where you realize the truth of what you are. And the truth of what you are, the only worthwhile part of what you are, is the divine part. So you shed off the parts of you that are not divine. And they become immaterial to your existence. And then the third level leads to al-wahda. And al-wahda is the, is the attainment of all attainments. Uh, al-wahda where basically you, you, come, you become capable of kharq al-ada. You, you become capable of doing... Uh, anyway, I don't, I don't want that, to... That's a qub. That, that's uh, someone who has attained a very high level. So what's very interesting from a learning point of view, is that these same ayat, which you find a, a, most of the tafsir that you look into, uh, would say, tell you that it is talking about the hereafter and the, what happens to people in the hereafter and the, the, those who are in trouble and those, the class of people, that in so much of the literature that we often don't read today unless you are belong to a tariqah and you're being trained and all of that 
um, they take the same ayat as inspirational for the here now and what you achieve in the here now. The final point of this course that is worth commenting on is that you find a great deal in the tafsir about what does it mean when it says فَادْخُلِي فِي عِبَادِي وَادْخُلِي جَنَّتِي فَادْخُلِي فِي عِبَادِي Enter into my servants. Why is that an issue? Because all of us are Abidullah. All of us are the slaves of God or the servants of God. There's no real good translation for the word abd because abd is not necessarily just a servant or a slave, but someone subject to the sovereignty of God. You are a abd whether you recognize it or not. You are subject to the sovereignty of God. Why are you abd? Because God decides whether God has power over you. God decides when you're born. God decides when you die. So, and whether you like it or not, you're abd. So when it said, فَتْخُلِي fi ibadi," The Mufassirun paused at this and said, well, how could it say enter into my servants how could it say enter into those who I have sovereignty over? Isn't it the fact that all of us under the sovereignty of God? So they go into long discussions to say, well, when there is a difference between ibad and abid, and when it, abid are those who are subject to the sovereignty of God, while ibad are those who are subject to the sovereignty of God who are happy with that sovereignty. So when it says, it means become those who are not just subject to the fate that I impose upon them, but rejoice in that sovereignty. They have finally attained a state of full peace and full tranquility with the fact that I am their sovereign. Now the Mufassirun go on in sizable discussions in, that, in, in this juncture to say, human beings, when they are born, they go through periods where they say, why was I born? Why was I born now? Why was I born to the parents I was born to? Why was I born in the class I was born to, born into? Then they go through life and they go through many moments where they ask the question, am I happy with my God? Or even if they are not so insolent to put it that way, but am I happy with my life? Am I happy with my fate? Everyone that has ever become depressed, everyone that has ever contemplated suicide, everyone that has ever gone through, you know, they, they know what we're talking about. You go through periods where, you know, I, I am not at peace with my God. In effect, in effect, they are, they put themselves at odds with the sovereign over them. 
So although God is sovereign over them, they do the most irrational thing. And that is to say, does that sovereignty make sense? Whether it makes sense or not, it is. I mean, and in fact, one of the, the um, I don't remember which tafsir I read it in, but it, uh, it, draw, it drew a comparison to ants. And whether an ant suddenly starts saying, you know, do I like the power structure that I exist in? Do I like the fact that the queen is a queen and that I am not a queen and I am a worker ant? Do I like the fact that I have to pick up this piece of whatever, take it here, take it there? It's an ant. And whether it likes it or not, God's fate will prevail or the, the, the fate of the ant hive. Or, you know, whether someone comes and steps on the ant or someone blow a wind blows the ant away, it's an ant. So it's a very irrational thing because we we enter into this mulawama or talawum with Allah into this process where our ego becomes inflated and we think we're much bigger than we are and we start saying, you know, God, am I happy with you? Am I content with you? Am I at peace with the fact that you've created me the way you've created me, with the body that you've given me, with the intellect that you've given me, with whatever? And we are not confronted with the irrationality of that until the hereafter. If you're a Sufi, you say you can be confronted with the irrationality in the here now. You go through the journey where then in a point of enlightenment, you say, oh my God, it is very irrational. But even if you don't go through it in the here now, you're confronted with it in the hereafter. Okay, what happens when you're confronted with it in the hereafter? You are either in those, فَيَتَذَكَّرُ الْإِنسَانُ وَأَنَّ لَهُ الذِّكْرَى Either those who remember and say, oh my God, how stupid was I? How irrational was I? I I've, I've sat there and asked a million questions and went through a hundred moments of depression, a million moments of depression, a million moments of rebellion, a million moments where I said, you know, the hell with this, I'm going to do what I like. But I ended up here. While there are those who at that moment are overcome with the with being entirely at peace with the fact of this relationship of God's sovereignty. They 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 have lived content with that sovereignty or reached a point of tranquility with that sovereignty which come to full culmination and full fruition in the hereafter. Some of the most beautiful discourses on Surah Al-Fajr or on particularly Ayatul Nafsul Mutma'inna and Fathuli Fi Ibadi Wathuli Jannati are the Sufi tafsir, whether they're printed or not printed. Because some of the some very beautiful ones are, are, are still in manuscript. But you you read some of the most inspired discourses, I mean whether uh, about um, what it means for a person to enter into, to accept the relationship of God's sovereignty, to fully become cognizant 
of the truth of God's sovereignty and how Jinan, Jinan is attainable on this earth even before the hereafter, which is a, a I mean, it's a very inspirational concept. When, if, if you read this material, um, it gives you something to dream of, to inspire of in this earth. If I can attain the Jinan in this lifetime, um, and this is, by the way, tied to a much bigger t topic, I I'm, hope I... That Darajatu Jinan it's the way that Sufis often interpret references to material enjoyment in Jannah. They read these references as symbolic. So they don't actually believe that a true seeker will want a river flowing with honey or will want to sit on cushions made of gold or embroidered cushions, or that all of that is symbolic for states of being and spiritual stage of advancement. Um, okay, I'm, su I'm sure as always I've forgotten things here and there, but I think we're done with Surah Al-Fajr, alhamdulillah. I'm sure in the Q&A things will come up.